You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love More Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. Your passion is waiting for your courage to catch up. That's from Isabel LaFleche. I remember the first time I heard that, I said, wow. Your passion is waiting for your courage to catch up. Good morning, good morning out there in Off the Shelf Podcast. Whether you listen to podcasts, radio, we air all over the world. So thank you for tuning in. If it's your first time listening to the show, You, i got to let you know that you are listening to the winning book Podcast off the shelf books and to our loyal listeners been with us for seventeen years. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome to this Saturday, March the eighteenth. You guys we in the middle of March. We're getting ready to kick off spring pretty soon. And again, I I cannot thank you enough for being here with us. We have a wonderful author on deck for you, but before I introduce her to you, I want to introduce you to Miss Rosetta Blay. Rosetta Blay, there's two books in the series, getting ready to come out with the third one. The first one, Rosetta, the talent show queen. She's in the fifth grade. This look, oh, is spunky. She's courageous. She's creative. And she's mischievous. For those who watch, like, Dennis the Menace or Pippi Longstocking, she got some of that in her, too. She is one go-get-it fifth grader, though. So in the first book, they're doing a school fifth-grade talent show. What is Miss Rosetta up to? She says something in the class, and now she's got to take the lead for the talent show. But her art nemesis make, wants to make sure it doesn't turn out just so right. And then in the second book, she comes out with this idea for to put on the skateboarding competition. So much happens, but she does very good work for two awesome causes as a young girl, her, her and the community. So that's the first two, and then the third book should be out later this year. If you love middle school books, you got a young person in your life, the book is for kids anywhere from 8 to 12. 8 to 12, I think, would enjoy it. Her, her, her brother and sister are teenagers, but I would say 8 to 12 is more like a middle school age book. You can get a book and either donate it to a youth center. You can get a book for a young person in your life, your own child. Uh, I think you'll love Rosetta Blake. Get in on the book series early. Miss Rosetta Blake. You can get it in ebook, print, or hardback. It's anywhere books are sold. And if you don't see it on the shelf, just ask the clerk. I want, to, I want the Rosetta Blake books by Denise Turney, and they can order it for you because the books are carried by the largest book distributors in the world. Go treat yourself and the kids in your life to Miss Awesome, Fun, 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 Rosetta Blay. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest this morning. And this morning's guest is Desiree Cooper. Desiree is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated journalist. Kudos. I mean, high, high, high commendation for that. She's a Midland Authors Award winner, a Midwest Book Award finalist, and a Forward India Indies Book of the Year Award finalist. She grew up in the Air Force and today is a mother and grandmother who makes her home in Virginia. Books and stories she has written include Know the Mother and Nothing Special. You, go, you guys are going to have to go to her website. 
there is something she does with like puppets or you have to go to her website. It's like I can't explain it. And I'm going to give you the URL in just a minute. She has also helped to create the short film Sarah E. Ray, Detroit's other Rosa Parks, and created the short film The Choice. Please, I think you will really enjoy visiting her website. Go check her out online at DesCooper.com, and that's spelled D-E-S-C-O-O-P-E-R.com, D-E-S-C-O-O-P-E-R.com. Again, D-E-S-C-O-O-P-E-R.com. You can check her out even as you enjoy today's show, and I want to make sure I pick up the right line. Good morning, Ms. Desiree. Good morning. How are you today? Oh, I'm blessed and so happy to have you on here. Just the work you do in your creative mind. I mean, we've just had such wonderful guests on off the show, from New York Times best-selling authors to filmmakers and songwriters to people like you. So, so glad for you to take your time out of your day to be here with us on Off the Shelf and with our listeners. The first few questions, Desiree, I'm going to ask you, ask every guest, just to give our listeners a little backstory on our on our on our guests before we launch into talking about their books, et cetera. So to kick off this off the shelf, Desiree, could you please tell off the shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? Well, that's a complicated question. Um, I am a military brat. My dad was in the Air Force. Um, And so I was born in Japan, and I lived nine of my first 14 years, not consecutively, but we went back three times for three years each before I was 14 years old. Um, And then my dad, um, in between, we traveled around the United States as well. And then my dad, both my parents are from Virginia. So when he retired from the Air Force, uh, he went back to live about an hour away from both where he grew up and where his four fathers were enslaved. So he went all around the world to come back to home. It's home. And that is um, coastal Virginia. Um, people might know the Norfolk area because that is the head of the North Atlantic Fleet, the biggest naval base in the world. And that's where I'm living now, uh, in the house that my father bought when he retired from the Air Force, raising um, my three grandchildren there. So we now have three generations have gone through that house. Isn't that something? Mm-hmm. Oh, talk about, you talk about history. And I know you would yes. want to really keep that house in your family. You talk about history. Now, what was it like? I was in the Navy myself, but what was it like growing up as a daughter of of, an, of somebody serving in the Air Force? And how long doing, was it until you were 14 that your father was in the Air Force, or was he in all your your childhood years? And what was that? What was that like traveling around so much? Well, you know, when you're born into that life, you don't know any different. And, um, yeah, so I was born a military brat, and my dad retired when I started high school, so I was 14. Um, we had It was a very different life because um, we all, not only did we have, like, what we call diversity now, <laughs> which is it could be economic diversity, it could be age diversity, but we were also international. Like I was in a Girl Scout troop that was called Troops on Foreign Soil, and we interacted with Japanese Girl Scouts and 
We went to the uh, World's Fair that was in Osaka, Japan, and Mount Fuji and all these places. And then I also lived in the desert. I lived in New Mexico. Um, I lived in Colorado in the mountains. I lived in Florida on Tampa Bay. So my my feeling about what the world is might have had a bigger, more expansive view than a lot of young people get. I think what I took from that is so many human commonalities are there that we don't see or understand about each other. I always mm. said when I was growing up, I said, I have friends waiting for me wherever I go. Wow. I mean, not oh my kids have that idea, but I knew it was true because whenever I moved, there were new people and, and there would be new friends, you know? I mean, the downside oh, I love is that, that I don't you, have... I have never... I have never heard anybody say that. Oh, wow. It's true. If your heart is open, if your mind is open, you do. You do. The world is just waiting for you wherever you show up. It's okay. It's okay. You're going to find your place. You're going to find your peeps, you know. Um, But a downside to that. No, go ahead. Go ahead, because I'm rambling. I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh, you go ahead. I, I just can't get that uh, quote, what you just said, out of my head. That's like should be on a school wall. It's, I think when you're young, your fear is, and even as adults, the, just the opposite of what you said. I'm not going to meet no friends. I'm not going to, I'm going to go there. Nobody's, I'm new. I don't know nobody. I think that's the fear when people go to new schools, they go to high school for the first time. Um, I'm going to leave all my old friends behind. And I never heard anybody say what you just said. Yeah, your people are waiting for you. I think you may miss them sometimes because of that fear, right? I mean, you. there's also that saying you become what you fear. So if you fear you're not going to fit in and not going to have friends, then guess what can really happen is you're manifesting that because of your own behavior. So, But a military kid, and not all military kids do well with the moving, but I think most do because everyone in your world is moving. You're not the new kid. You're the new kid for a week before another new kid bails in and a kid that you knew leaves, you know. So everyone is moving around, and so it feels normal, and you get that um, you are acclimated to a lot of wonderful people circling through your life. But what I was going to say is the downside is I did not have that connection to place and Actually, to family. To me, family was the four people in my nuclear family, my parents, my brother, and I, because we were always alone. You know, as a family, we didn't have kin around us. Um, And so at the same time, I was 14, really getting to know cousins and getting to be close to my grandmother was the only grandparent left by the time we came back to the States. So... We're going to talk, I know, a little bit more about my book, but you will see where those experiences uh, really influenced the story that I decided to write. Mm. So I wanted to ask you, before we do go into and talk a little bit about your journalism as well, how do you think your travels, I know you talked a little bit about how they impacted you, but how do you think your travels impact your writing, including your character development and your dialogue? Um, well, it's so funny because often when I write, I don't actually see the people. It's a downfall of my writing. 
people talk about character development. Well, what do they look like? What do they sound like? And I don't see them. They're more like a voice, and I don't want to sound like too woo-woo girl, but they're almost like a spirit moving through the, the situation and the action because I don't have a fixed picture of what a person is like. Having lived internationally, having lived all over the States, when you say waitress, 500 different images might come through my mind. Or if you say bus driver, you know, it, it's not a stereotype doesn't come mm. into my head. And so a downfall is that I don't, uh, I develop the character well internally and even maybe how they talk. But seeing them, I have to go back and paint the pictures of what they actually look like. Because to me, it's almost irrelevant what they look like me as a person. So that's not the makings of a good writer, <laughs> a good novelist who cannot draw a picture of their character. So maybe it's no accident that I write very short. I write uh, very short stories and then what's called flash fiction, which is generally stories about a thousand words or less because you don't have a lot of time or need to develop all that. You, you meet your characters in a space, in a situation, you carry them through a movement and then you leave them and let the reader say, wow, they're not going to live happily ever after or wow, wait till they, uh, wait till they fall in love or whatever your brain is bringing to the story. And so I do that well and I think that's because of my con- part of my conditioning. I got to ask you this, um, and at first I was kind of like, should I, should I not? When you were a little backstepping, then I want to talk about a little bit of your journalism and get into your, your novels. As a kid, you traveled a lot. I'm listening to you talk. What did you? What was your dream when you were a little girl, if you had one? What did you want to be when you grew up when you were a kid? Did you say, I want to grow up and be a scientist, or what, what did you want to become when you were a little girl? I have only ever wanted to be a writer. Um, Wow. Yeah, I have loved books my entire life. When I read, um, I'm going to blame it on Charlotte's Web, even though I had a lot of favorites back then. I don't even know if that's a quote-unquote classic anymore, but it was a classic when I was a little girl. And I think that book flipped me from being a reader to I can, I can write this. You know, I want, this is what I want to do. I want to write, and listen, look at the tie-in between what I just told you about myself in this, this book. A spider is a main character, you know, something that you can't even actually love, you know, and that's talking and interacting on a peer level with a pig and a girl. That's kind of how I see things, right? And so that... That book blew me away, and I really wanted to write. And, I, Denise, I will tell you, I had a short period of time where I wanted to be an astronaut because, oh. well, you can't be a kid in the 1968-69 and watching the moon launch without just falling in love with the sky, you know, and the universe and what is all out there. But that didn't last long. I went right back to my writing. <laughs> Okay, okay. Now, what was it like for our listeners who themselves, some people still major in journalism. I've heard some people say, you know, to move away from that. But I think there will always be a need for that. But what was it like working as a journalist and how long 
did you work as a journalist? Um, I so when I I was a journalism major in college at the University of Maryland, and then I went to the University of Virginia to law school. And I when I got out of law school, I um, moved to Detroit. I met who the guy who was going to be my husband who was from Detroit. So I, I say, I always say married Detroit. And um, I practiced law there for about five years. And then I said, what is a nice girl like me doing in a place like this? I left to do community work. Um, so by the time I got into journalism, it was literally 12 years out of school, out of earning my degree before my first job in journalism. And um it was me finding my way back to writing, but also I had, you know, I had bills to pay and children to raise, so I couldn't sit in a corner and write the great American novel. And journalism just was attracted to me as a way to to keep telling stories and to keep writing. And so I actually was a working journalist for about 11 years. Wow. Um, yeah. And um, most of that time was at the Detroit Free Press, and that's where I got my Pulitzer nominations. And congratulations. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Journalism, I think that, to me, the writing, and I'm thinking as we start, I want to talk about your uh, book, Nothing Special, but I'm thinking about journalism. I always think the writing, and you said you practice law. That seems like it's a very... um, I forget there's two sides of the brain. One's creative, the other one is more. um, Mm -hmm. That seems like the non-creative side to me. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. And that you that you could switch, that you could switch like that. I'm just like that. It's just really. Well, listen, listen, Denise. Think about how many. You know, I as I was born in 1960, a black child of parents that came straight out of the Jim Crow South, they felt like they had protested and and pushed and opened doors. And so I think that a lot of people in my generation felt like our jobs were to walk through those doors and to kind of take those opportunities and Go for the American dream. You think about like a play like Raise, A Raisin in the Sun. You know, are you gonna are you gonna move into the new neighborhood? Are you going to take the new job? And so I felt a, a lot of pressure around that. Writing, I was like, that's great, yeah. And if you can tap dance and play the flute, nice. <laughs> but what's your real job going to be? And so I didn't have um, people in my environment who really said, you know, you have a little knack for this. Why don't you take a writing class? Or it was teachers that said, "Why don't you write extra for me, or write this poem, or read this?" I had teachers all along that fed me as a writer, but my family saw it as a hobby, and so I think I did a lot of people pleasing along the way. Of okay, I okay, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna go to college, I'm gonna get a nice job, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna sort of follow that track. And it took me a long time. Listen, you opened the show saying your passion's waiting for your courage to arrive, right? You talk about something that got you worked up. That got me worked up first thing today because that was the story of my life. It took me years to have the courage to say, what am I doing 
I want to write. I've never not wanted to write. When is it going to be my turn? I've got to do this. And it, I was a grown woman before I could take advantage, you know, take that by the horns and try to make it real. Oh, my goodness. But you did do it for our off-the-shelf listeners who might be thinking, oh, it's too late for me. It's never too late. You did do it. Now, can you give our listeners a short overview of your book, Nothing Special? I will. And I just, I just want to add to what you just said to listeners. I was 56 when my first book came out. That's called Know the Mother, and that's the collection of real short fiction that I was talking about earlier. And then that was 56, and now it was six years later before my next book. So I'm on a long timeline, but well, good for it's you, my though. dream. You get it and done. It's, yeah, you stick with it. It's, yeah, it's my, it's my passion. So nothing special. On the surface, nothing special is a buddy book. It's an intergenerational buddy book about an African-American boy named Jax who is going down south to visit his grandparents in Virginia, and he's wondering what are all the amazing things, like is Pop-Pop going to take me to the movies, and we're going to go to McDonald's, and we're going to go, you know, to the zoo, all his city boy things that he likes to do. When he asks Pop-Pop what they're going to do, Pop-Pop says, I think we'll do what I did when I was a boy. Well, what's that, Pop-Pop? And Pop-Pop says, nah, nothing special. (laughs) So you can see that set up. From there, they had the most special time you could ever have. But it was sort Uh of, yeah, it's like not about computers and it's not about buying things. And it's like low-tech, high-intimacy kinds of activities. Um, is it so, is it set in today's time period? Is it set it in, is. or is it okay? Okay. Yes, yeah. it it is. But the underpinnings of the story goes back generations, and it goes back to my my dad's story, who we called Papa. Um, it so many African American families have this story of living outside of the South, many in the North, some out West, Los Angeles, Seattle, down in Texas, but they go back to the home place to remain connected to those who did not leave the South during the Great Migration. And so my dad was one of the of the people who left the South, he left Virginia in the second wave of the Great Migration, which was... Uh, between the 50s and the 70s. A lot of people don't know. For for those that don't know, the Great Migration is one of the biggest movements of a population inside of a nation anywhere, where millions of African Americans left the racial oppression of the Jim Crow South, starting in the 1910s, and moved to northern cities where they felt they could have more opportunity. And so my dad was part of that wave, but the tail end of it, where a lot of African-Americans were going into the military for the same reasons. And that's why my dad enlisted. And, um, but, you know, we just talked about how is a vagabond in terms of my kinship relationships, but I was always a Virginian. I was raised by two Virginians and we always talked about Virginia as home, even though I had never even lived there, but I was culturally, historically, ancestrally tied to Virginia. And even though I spent 
my whole adulthood in Detroit, I was part of those many, many children who always went back, Georgia, Mississippi, the Carolinas, south for family reunions in the summer. So this is what I call, Denise, this is what I call black nostalgia. Our nostalgia is not roosters cockadoodling, waving fields of grain, red barns, you know, that's Americana. Our nostalgia is a family reunion because we have been holding on to each other as a race since, since they took us from the African continent. We've been trying to find each other and hold on. Um, and the reunion is born of that need and that determination that you can take a lot of things away, but you're not going to take my people away from me ever again. And so nothing special is a fun reunion for a child ages maybe three to seven, but I'm hoping that the parent, especially the African-American parent that's reading the book to a child, will see themselves and their family experience like, yeah, that's what we did. We always went back south for the summer. Okay. Now, what's six-year-old Jack's like? Is he outgoing, confident? Is he more laid back? What, what, describe him for our listeners. Yeah, Jax has an agenda, okay? Jax is coming down south to party. He has his fixed mind about all the things he's going to do. He basically wants to take his city life with him and bring it, bring it down to the country. And when Pop-Pop sort of flips the script on him, he's like, whoa, he's a little worried that this is not going to be fun and that he's not going to ha- do the good things that he had planned to do. And every time Pop-Pop opens the door to one thing, like the first thing they do is they go to the beach and go crabbing, which is something, you know, so many people in Maryland, the coastal, the southeast um, United States, that is a typical thing to do. But him being raised in Detroit had never been crabbing. So he's a little bit like, what are we doing? I'm not so sure. (laughs) But when those crabs start Hopping on, uh, biting the line, and they get them out of the water, he, the excitement grows, and he's just so excited. And it's it's a true adventure, even though it's something, you know, basically free to go and do. And they go from one thing to another until his mind is just truly open to how to have fun by just having fun, <laughs> you know, and not requiring so much assistance with that, you know, no Netflix, no, um, you know, no um, computers, you know, you don't need a lot of equipment, you don't need to go somewhere, the, most of it takes place, or a lot takes place in their backyard, you know, so um, Jackson is won over by the end for sure, it's a very memorable stay for him. Okay, so he's like at first a little apprehensive. I don't really want to go now. One, one of, and then it changes. I wanted also to ask you, what does Jack's pop pop? What does he think of Detroit and other northern cities? And has pop pop? Did he ever leave the South? Did he ever live in a northern city? Um, well, we don't know that as as readers in the story. Um, But the premise for me in my mind as the writer is that, no, that Pop-Pop would have remained home and and created a home place where all the different tentacles of the family come back to. 
Um, and so that's what's happening. And, and Jax's parents don't really appear. You know, it's all about Jax running right out of the car into his grandparents' arms. <laughs> and so, yeah. So it's, you, you don't know all of that backstory. Those are really great questions. But in my mind, I'm feeling like, no, this is, this is the story about the ones who stayed behind in the South and sort of maintained that home place for the rest of us who left you know, seeking a different life. Okay. I love the illustrations. How did you find the illustrator uh, for Nothing Special? Okay, now I'm going to start bragging because I did. (laughs) I had nothing to do with the illustrations. And I'm going to tell all the listeners there, go to DesCooper.com, D-E-S-C-O-O-P-E-R, that's my name, DesCooper.com, and take a look, just get a little preview of what it looks like. These illustrations literally jump off the page. They look like if you've done or seen stop animation or claymation, it looks like that. Puppets, they're done handmade by a fabrication artist in New Jersey. Her name is Beck Sloan. She is nothing short of a genius. Everything that you see in the pictures, and the pictures are lush, were made by hand by Beck out of recycled fabrics and then photographed. So there's lots of scenes with flowers. Uh, Each petal of the flower was cut out, handmade, and put together in bunches. And they were cut out from recycled plastic garbage bags. Like there's a lot of pink flowers, white flowers. Those are from garbage bags, yes. Um, The characters themselves are, are, they almost look like felt. They're like felted. She made the outfits and put them on the dolls. I'm going to call them dolls, but she would be upset about that. (laughs) They're like, oh, fabrications. I don't know what to call them, but they're beautiful. And... um, in almost every scene, Pop-Up is wearing a hat. And you only get a few glimpses of the hat until you get a really great look at it on the last page. And you see it's his U.S. Army Air Force veteran, I mean, U.S. Air Force veteran hat. So she wove what we call Easter eggs, the little surprises that are referrals to my personal story, but also others might catch that. Like, yeah, this man served his country. He's a Southerner who's old enough to have lived through Jim Crow. He's an old man in the, in the, in the story, and he's got his veteran hat on. He's served his country. You know, there's so many people who can relate to that experience. Um, there is one page that I call, it's like the best fold. And this is where Jax is waking up in the morning saying, what are we going to do today? You know, and he's jumping up in bed. So you will see on that page, Jax is wearing the, a University of Michigan pajama set. And then on the wall, there's a pennant that says the University of Virginia. And Pop-Pop's wearing his Air Force veteran hat and there's that iconic handmade grandma quilt on the bed and all of those are referenced to that great migration the quilt leaving leaving the south the veteran enlisting uh, so that he could escape Jim Crow and what what did his sacrifice for his country and his family mean it meant that Jax is now sleeping in pajamas 
with University of Michigan on it, he's they they've now made the leap to middle class and college bound. He's surrounded by that and the University of Virginia. So that means his family has transcended the poverty that this man lived for in the South. Now you're not gonna know all that if you're just reading the story. I know it and Beth knows it because she wove it with her art mm-hmm. into the picture. How did you um, find her again? How did oh you God. find her? How did you cross paths? We were working on another project, a moment out of Michigan, where I would call her the black, the Rosa Parks of Michigan, because she got on this um, amusement park ferry. Her name was uh, Sarah Ray in 1945, and they kicked her off of the ferry because she was black, and she sued and won. Um, and so in 1948, she won the right to ride on that boat from the U.S. Supreme Court. Thurgood wow. Marshall had filed a brief in her support. So this was years before Rosa Parks, that, you know, like six years before Rosa Parks on the bus. So I was telling that story, and the artist, Beck Sloan, was working on an animation part of Sarah Ray getting kicked off the bus because there's no film about it. So they had to recreate it. And when I saw her recreation, I'm like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. It was just so beautiful, so detailed, so perfect. And so I got lucky enough when I asked her, would she work on this? And she said, yes. Yeah. So I completely lucked out, and I'm going to tell you the book is Stunning. If you are a grown folk and you haven't bought a children's book in a long time, first of all, you're missing a lot because children's books are uh, they are amazing now. They are. I but agree. Of, I yeah. Agree. Yes. Yeah, but think of them as art projects. Like this is an art book. Every page, if you look at every page that somebody handmade everything, the water is fabric. Where they go yeah. to the beach, it's fabric. Um, corn husking, and she carved the corn cobs out of balsa wood and then put the husks on it with fabric. I'm telling you, the detail is stunning. Yeah, I'm, so I, I, pro- I said, I'm just so honored, yeah. yeah. That's why I said you have to go to com to see, just to start to see some of, some of the work, because I've never seen anything like it, like in a, in a, in a in a in any kids or adult book, will there be, do you plan on turning the story of Jackson, his pop pop and family into mm-hmm. a series? I I would absolutely love to do that. Um, it's just going to be a, a bit about us managing time and finding um, the right place that you know, lets us continue to work together. I don't know if folks know this, but lots of times, if it, like I'm not an illustrator, which is why I'm bragging so much about her, but if you're an, a children's author, big publishing houses in particular might take your story, but they have the illustrators that they work with. So they don't take pairs, you know. They decide who you're going to be paired with. And I'm hoping after seeing what we can do together, we wouldn't be separated, but I need, I need her or I'm not going to do it. I mean, because it's, it's her art that embodies the story, you know, and she's the magic. So I, it would just lose so much if 
if we weren't able to work together. So we're, I don't know, put it out in the universe because we definitely <laughs> want to do it again. <laughs> what have readers been saying about Nothing Special? I have had the most unexpected best time of my life Aww. reading to children. <laughs> I'm not a children's author. This is my first children's book. Um, I almost saw reading in schools as part of, like, my civic duty to children, which it is, but not necessarily part of that business of marketing and selling a book. That goes, you're you're talking to adults, right, because the kids aren't buying them. So it would be, as, as an aside, I would get to go, but I'm telling you now, it's front and center. My whole vision is to get to schools, and I've been so lucky that schools have made it possible for the kids to have copies of the books, and I come and talk to classes and to big groups and to little groups. The kids are so brilliant and so engaged. I've done um, mostly second graders and up to some third graders, which is now I know that I've taken it on the road that definitely nine-year-olds engage with this. It's a picture book but they engage just as much as the itty-bitties do. They find something different to talk about. Um, and oh. they are they're brilliant. They, they talk about their grandparents. They talk about going home, no matter what their backgrounds are. Um, you know, the American family has been split ever since the automobile got popular. So everybody has a story of not living near kinfolks and going to visit kinfolks. And so... They relate on every single level. Um, they get really engaged in the act, uh, activities that Jax has with his pop-up, and then they add their own stories. Um, even on my website, I have an activities guide so that if anyone is the book or if they want to do it for their church group or whatever, there's lots of free suggestions. You just sign up and you get this PDF with all kinds of lessons and suggestions and coloring pages and things for people to download. So it the high engagement with kids has been stunning. It has been so fun. Oh. I've been brought to tears by these babies. I know. Oh. I've done it in homeless shelters, um, in um, at, with at-risk groups of kids, with kids who have all the resources in the world. And kind of back to my you know, original lesson, it's like there's so much universality, you know, and I'm happy that the book is is striking that chord. Oh, that's awesome, awesome. Now, we are switching gears, and I think it would make a wonderful series. It's just so unique. How did did, uh, the makings of that book, Nothing Special, so unique? Switching gears a little bit. How did, you said this was your first, uh, like, nonfiction writing work, I mean, fiction. How did Know the Mother come to be? Well, Know the Mother um, is that collection of flash fiction that we were talking about earlier, and that took me 20 years to write. And it took me 20. There's about 31 stories. I don't think uh, it's not 200 pages. It's like 100 and maybe 70 pages. It's a slim, slim collection. took me 20 years. Because I was writing as a hobby all that time, and I I didn't have my writing front and center. It wouldn't die, so I kept writing. 
Um, and one day someone asked me, where's your work? You know, like you got, I was a, a columnist, a newspaper columnist. And somebody said, what is your, where's your other work? You got to be writing some, some stuff. And I'm like, well, I guess I am. And I, I, that was the first time I went back over things and pulled them together and said, you know, this, maybe this is a collection of stories. And so that's how it came to be. Oh, my goodness. You know, it's it's often, I know some people, we've interviewed people on Off the Shelf. I say, how did you get started in your writing? Oh, me and my friend went to some writer conference, and my friend dared me. I bet you can't write a novel by the end of the year. <laughs> and that's how they, and they went on to be like a bestseller. It's, they, that's how, it's interesting how everything uh, works together. Now, did other women contribute to Know the Mother? And if, if so, how did you choose those writers, or did you yourself uh, write all of the uh, pieces in the book. Mm-hmm. I wrote all of the pieces in the book, um, but that's such a good question because each story kind of represents a different woman in a different phase of life. And so on some level, all the women that I've known, you know, would be able to find themselves in in the stories. It's about how women struggle for their own identities and their own desires while juggling that mantle of mother and all that means and all that care it means that goes outward and never it never quite comes back. Um and so women are taking care they're they're caregivers. Um women are um are daughters, you know, women in the book are retired and thinking about what's next in their lives. Women are living with regret over what they what they let go of themselves. Women are living with discovery about what they just found out about themselves. So it's it's all it's all of those phases. Even little girls, you know, about how the templates get set. Um with children watching their own um, mothers as models and thinking what they will do and won't do when they grow up. So it's got, it's got that range. And, you know, again, it's got also diverse um, voices. Many of the stories don't say what the background um, of the protagonist is. It's all about her situation, not what she looks like in particular. Um, and then some, there's, there are Asian women, women in the story, they're old and young, they're rich and poor. So I try to cover a range in, in that collection of 30, 31 stories. So are these, just, just for our listeners, so as they try to, try to envision it, uh, know the mother, mm-hmm. is it the book, is it a compilation of short stories or a mix of short stories, poems, uh, what, what is it? Is it just mainly short stories? Do you have poems, songs, et cetera, in the book? Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's kind of an interesting um, um, category that is growing in popularity, and that's called flash fiction. So the stories are even shorter than short stories. So except for two, most of them are about only 750 words, so three pages. And and they're not connected, so you can read it like a magazine. You can flip it open and just read three pages here, close it, go back, read another three pages. So there's they're almost like snapshots of women in different um, kinds of situations in their lives. Um, a, a pregnant woman in a law firm, uh, a woman, um, 
uh, surviving breast cancer. Um, you know, a woman um, taking, she thinks she's on a flight to take her granddaughter to college, but really the flight is to move the grandmother to Atlanta where the family is because the mother can't, grandmother can't live alone anymore. So it's the grandmother. It's an older woman getting her first massage. So all of these stories um, really call into question, you know, who these women really, really are, what their deepest wants and desires for them. And, and really not on a sensual level, but more on a identity level. Who am I? And, you know, there's one, and that's the title story, um, called Know the Mother, of a woman that's taking care of her mother. She goes down to fold the laundry, and she hears singing upstairs, like this beautiful voice. And she goes upstairs, and her mother is just the way she left her. She hasn't moved. But evidently, in her sleep, you know, with Alzheimer's and dementia, she suddenly remembered that she could sing. And this is something that, that the daughter never knew about the mother, you know, so that's part of why it's called Know the Mother. Like, who are these people? You know, for us, they are at our disposal. There are people that meet our needs, but we almost never get to know them as their own human being. Wow, I love that approach. So the, 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 your inspiration to write the book, did this come after you became a mother yourself? And you're like, well, well I had an aunt who told me that. She said, people either know me as Aunt Pat or Mama mm-hmm. or they don't really know me. Is that what? So is that the inspiration after you became a mother? That that's what inspiration to write the book came from. Yeah, I would have to say that's definitely um, where the momentum came from. I do see myself as a feminist, and I've, I've, um, you know, I've suspected it all along and fought against it. I think that's also a reason how I ended up in law school. It's like, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be somebody, you know. <laughs> But it was the wrong somebody because I couldn't I couldn't come to grips with who I really 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 wanted to be inside. That took a long time. Um, but children really solidified it because the role is just so constricting of mother. It's I found it. Not everyone finds it that way, so I need to say that. But I found it very very constricting because the expectations are. So high, and the demands are so high, and there's very little room for anything else, or there wasn't for me. I couldn't juggle it well, um, and so yeah, I would definitely say becoming a mother at two children um, was definitely uh, the impetus. You know, it was like that little grit in the oyster that that brought out the pearls of stories because I was trying to keep covering that grit because it was a soft spot for me, and that's where the stories came out. Before we talk about the choice, I want to ask you really quickly, as we have about 14 minutes left, what did you learn about yourself as you created Know the Mother that you, you didn't know before? Um, well, I think that's a, such a good question. I wish you had uh, written that down and sent it to me so I could have thought <laughs> about it a little bit. <laughs> to say that I think it was more of recognizing how much confusion, resentment, awe was in me around becoming and being a mother. 
You know, especially because it's not now the the stories are not autobiographical, but they read many read like they really happened. Well, that's because they're all true to a core. You know what I'm saying? Like there's mm-hmm. there's a truth to them. Them feel like this really must have happened, and I think it's that those truths that I discovered along the way of trying to synthesize what is happening. Like, why is a boss able I tell my boss, I just want to let you know I'm expecting and I'll be having a baby in, you know, six months. And my boss says again. Whoa. <laughs> and I'm like, I have one child. How many children will be convenient for you? It's not like, even if I was having my 16th child, that's none of your business. Yeah. You know, I mean, I had so many moments like, what is going on in this world? Why are women supposed to be mothers but, you know, sort of like derided for being mothers or not being enough mothers? And, And yet they love, 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 deeply, deeply love their children, many. And... How do you put all that in one head? And I think that Know the Mother was sort of an offloading of all those feelings. Mm-hmm. So there was a catharsis over over the course of two decades of putting it down and just saving. i got to save that thought and put it out there. Oh, my gosh, this happened. i got to save that thought and put it out I mean, it might be one reason why it's not about one person because there's just so many different situations that I wanted to capture um, okay. that women experienced. Yeah. And it, I think it's something that is timeless, you know, it, mm. timeless. Mm-hmm. I would imagine, though, the mother and how many, even not just the children, it would be really good, I think, for children, particularly adult children, to to read. Mm-hmm. And then a, a mother herself, a mother herself or somebody thinking of becoming a mother, so she's reading and she's going, oh, that's not so unusual. <laughs> exactly. See the other so mothers go, go through this. And then this kind of kind of pivots into my next question. When and why did you create the Choice short film? Mm-hmm. So um, the Choice is about reproductive choice, um, and so the story is about every line. Again, this was flash fiction when I wrote it, and it's three pages, and almost every line is a different speaker speaking about feelings about becoming pregnant, unplanned, and how she feels about it, and then her decision to have an abortion, and then having in the aftermath of the abortion. And they they all think differently. The situations going in were different. The, the experience of the procedure was different, and how they feel coming out. And it goes from regret to relief. It goes from... Um, you know, surprise to sadness, you know, you know, everything in between. So I feel like it's that in between conversation that we as a nation are not, are not having about the women and what they are going through. The focus has always been on the potential life, the potential child, but not on the existing life of the woman and what her thought processes are, whether or not to continue. In the in the choice, they all do choose to have an abortion, but they all don't feel the same way about having made that choice. Mm. So How did you, I wanted that out there. 
No, go ahead. Yeah, I, I just wanted it out there to be a voice. It's actually on YouTube, free. Um, it's um, if you go to YouTube and go to the choice Desiree Cooper, because you'll if you do it, you might get a romance film or you might get shoes. I don't know what you'll get because the choice is kind of common, so you have to put my name in with it. And it's seven minutes, and um, it's been in film festivals and things. Um, I think people have seen it as a way to get into the conversation. How did you choose the women to uh, to, to select to include in the short film? Well, part of my um, activities in Detroit have been along reproductive choice, and so I already made um, just you know lots of friends and colleagues. I asked them to bring a friend. So the women are sort of just the rally of women who just answered the call when I said I want to do this, and this is what the film is about, and will, and will you be in it? And uh, they didn't have to speak. They didn't have to be actors. They just had to use their voices, and the voiceover tells the story, you know, so they're not telling the story. So they just had to have their their faces and lend their images. And um, with each new character in the story, there's a new image of a woman. And they they range the gamut um, in terms of where they're from and how they look and what their ethnicity is. So you're doing films, you've done uh, working with this awesome illustrator with nothing special, and then the 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 the, uh, the 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 flash fiction, know the mother, just different works you've done. On this, on when you work on a film, are you writing it? Are you and also directing it? What was your role in the creation of the choice and and in other short films you may have worked mm-hmm. on? Um, writing for sure, um, and I have done. I'll, I'll call it. I won't be so arrogant as to say I was the director, but I had a, a lot of creative um, input. So I'm going to say co-director. <laughs> um, lots of input on what was working and what isn't. Like how closely did it match my vision of of what it should look like. And, you know, I've been lucky to find, you know, great people that are able to take what's in my head and make it happen. And I'm like, whoa, you know. So it's been fun. It's been really fun to experiment. We are coming down to the wire. I had so many, uh, several other questions. We're not going to get to them all. But I know you've been interviewed in or had several of your works published in magazines like Poets and Writers, which I love, Fiction Writers Review, Between the Lines, and The Best American Essays. Do you, Desiree, would you recommend that authors get their works name introduced to more readers by writing and publishing essays and other short pieces? Absolutely. The worst thing you can do is hide your big, long novel or memoir and wait till you have the 300 pages and then just gift it to the world. That is absolutely the wrong thing to do, in my opinion. You should you should bite it off into small pieces. Have them polished. Have other people react to it. And the publishing process is also an editing process. If you're getting a whole lot of rejections, maybe you should be more persistent or precise about where you're submitting, but maybe you need to polish it a little more. Maybe it's not ready. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's ready and they take it, they're also going to line edit and make – I've had – stories that I just knew was done, and they took it, and they said, but you know that last line. And I'm like, what? You mean the best line in the piece? Like, yeah, well, that's got to go, you know? <laughs> so you get, it's almost like 
free editing, you know, by getting it out there and getting people to give you feedback. Don't write alone with no one to hear your words. Yeah, Get them out there. Let other people hear them. Let other people respond so that you know if what you mean to say is what you're really saying. So absolutely take a few thousand words, shape them up, and get them start submitting for sure. Okay. Do you have plans to write an adult novel? And if so, what do you think that novel would be about? Um, well, I'm just going to say this, but don't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> I do have a romance novel. That uh, the first draft, which means there's still like eight to go, and I don't really read a lot of romance. Um, but my best friend, so you said you talked about someone getting a challenge. So my best friend reads them all the time, and she's like, "Well, why don't you write a romance novel? I think you know it'd be great." And here are some characters. And so as a challenge, I started this novel, and um, and actually she's reading it now. So it's just between the two of us. Nobody else knows about this. And and she's reading it to see how close I got to the genre. So I'd say if I was going to do a novel, that one might be the closest to getting out. As you can see, I'm a genre agnostic. So I don't I don't travel in just one lane. And I have essays out there. I have flash fiction out there. I have memoir out there. Now I have a children's book. I, I'm too old. I'm 63. I'm going to write what I feel like writing. I spent a go. lot of my childhood thinking that I couldn't or shouldn't, and now no one's going to tell me that I can't. There so I'm going go. to try it. <laughs> Where can off-the-shelf listeners get a copy of Nothing Special? And you told us where to find the choice on YouTube, but to your other works, where can our listeners get a copy of your other Nothing Special and your other works? So you can find um, Nothing Special at my website, descooper.com, and also links to Know the Mother. If you go to my website, there's also an activities guide that you can sign up for that's free uh, for Nothing Special. Um, other than that, go to your favorite bookstore. Go online. I always it's, It is available on Amazon. It is available at Barnes & Noble. It is available at your independent bookstore. A lot of people don't know about bookshop.org which is like Amazon. You can get almost any book you want to get. Um, but a part of the proceeds go back to ind helping independent bookstores, which I love. So you can go to bookshop.org as well. So wherever you get books, you can go get them or order either of the books. Do you have any upcoming speaking engagements? And where, if you're on social media, can you tell our listeners where they can find you on social media? Yeah, at Instagram, I'm uh, at Des Cooper, D-E-S-C-O-O-P-E-R. Um, and on Facebook, I'm at Des Cooper Author. And those are the two best places. To, I'm on Twitter, Des Cooper, I'm not Twitter, I'm sorry, TikTok at Des Cooper Author as well. Um, and those are the best places to find. It's funny you should say that, but in one minute, I have a presentation that I'm doing in Detroit um, on Nothing Special. So I've been lucky to be able to travel around next week. I'm in Richmond, Virginia, um, and I just came from Seattle. So I'm still kind of fresh on book touring Nothing Special. 
So my social media is definitely the best place to find out where I'll be next. Oh, we have had the pleasure. Thank you so much, <laughs> Ms. Desiree Cooper. I'm interviewing Desiree Cooper again. Some of her works are her book, Nothing Special, Know the Mother, and her short film, The Choice, which she said is on YouTube. You can check her out online at DesCooper.com, D-E-S-C-O-O-P-E-R.com. Again, that's D-E-S-C-O-O-P-E-R.com. I encourage you all to get over there. That, the illustrations for Nothing Mother and to see the puppets and, oh, and schools to reach out to her because I think you'd be a fabulous guest at school. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Desiree Cooper, for taking time out of your day to be here with us. Today, and to our listeners, thank you for taking time out of your day to tune in to Off the Shelf Books. Remember, set your calendar. Just set a reminder for yourself. You don't want to miss these awesome guests. Saturdays, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or New York City Time. Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You're going to catch Off the Shelf Books to listen to these awesome guests. Desiree, as soon as the show finishes streaming, I'll send email you a link to the show. And as I tell you every week to our, to our listeners, you are awesome. You are amazing. You are so incredible. Go out and create a wonderful day for yourself. See you back here next Saturday, 11 a.m. Bye for now. Thank you so much. Thank you. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.